Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, the hunt for the long life gene. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science. We can text us for 30 cent 53106. We get to all of those comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news, and we're joined by Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen. Uh, Shane, our first story is about something we've been trying to do for quite some time in this programme, which is replace physicists like you with robots. We're one step closer. Yeah, well, this computer says no, I'm afraid. Um, I This is a this is really physics baiting of the highest order, Jonathan. I got this uh, story and it was saying that, uh, yeah, uh, computers were going to replace physicists. And kind of, I, I read it with interest, as you might imagine. And then I realized it was a complete non-story. Um, what they're talking about here... You is would the, say that. ...is the next generation of computational physics. So there are different types of physicists, as I'm sure you're aware. There's experimental physicists like me. There's theoretical physicists. They're all the equations. And then there's people that do computational physics. So they run their experiments, but on computers. And I'm sure Ruth would be aware of um, equivalents in the biological world that do all their work on computers as well. And like what happens is you set parameters and boundary conditions and you run a program and you got lots of outputs. But a lot of the outputs don't make any real world sense. And it takes the physicists to go in and sort out the rubbish from the plausible. But what they've done in this story, what is new here is that they've used artificial intelligence, in particular, a neural network to teach the uh, the, the machine so that it's able to actually apply the, the laws of physics um, to, to kind of sort out the plausible from the implausible. And, and, and that's at the heart of this story. Now, uh, there's a couple of questions I have. That The first is, because we're working with our knowledge of physics, and, and feeding that into uh, the computer, while it, it's it's fairly um, comprehensive, is it possible that we are limiting the potential of this computer by only inputting what we actually know when there could be stuff we don't know out there? Known unknowns, as Rumsfeld might, might say. Um, y- yes, but I suppose it's like, you know, how far can you bend the rule, right? So, like, you, you have to apply the, the, the laws of physics as we know them because the rest of it at the moment just isn't real. So what, what you could find here is that, and this is actually what happened in this experiment, they, they ran it against something they already knew as a proof of concept. And what came out in the end didn't match the reality. And so there's something wrong. And so when they looked into that, they realized that, that the understanding of the physics behind the material at, uh, at the heart of this story, uh, some so-called metamaterial, that they weren't right. And so they had to adjust their understanding of the underlying physics very, very slightly. So, so they learned something new about the physics because um, because of the results didn't match what they expected, and so they realised that the, the information they're putting in was incorrect. Exactly. I mean, to me, to me, mathematics and physics, very rule based science, where you know we have very specific equations that define um, the world as we know it. That seems to me ripe for something like AI to. To, to basically work within that closed system to solve theorems that we are struggling to do, those million euro prize uh, that, that, that still exist in mathematics. 
is this not exactly what we we want um, AI to do? Well, yes and no, because what it can't do is the paradigm shift. What it can't do is the creative part. So it can can run all of the uh, possibilities incredibly quickly and you can teach it to apply best known physics to it, um, to its outcomes. But what you can't do is to, to interpret that, to analyze, to to, to, to do the higher order things that that's where you need your your physicist so i'm i'm glad to say i don't think myself and my fellow physicists will be out of a job anytime soon do you know uh, as funny as you find that i've heard people from so many different disciplines say that over the past three weeks <laughs> uh, and and really it seems like you're all trying to convince yourselves it is only a matter of time um, before we are all outpaced by ai in my personal opinion this idea that we'll always need a human at the center of it is such hubris i just think it's ridiculous well maybe um, the question should be is like should we always have a human at the center of it? Uh, nah. you're, you're saying no. I, I would say absolutely. All right. Um, well, we'll have this conversation again in 10 years time and see where we are. <laughs> uh, our second story, Ruth, uh, has to do with another treatment for um, obesity and a pill that supposedly replaces exercise. I know, it's sort of like this holy grail, isn't it? Just take a pill and then you don't have to go to the gym. Um, but but obesity, as you said, it's a big health problem. So scientists are looking at it. Um, and a lot of people, you know, are suffering from such levels of obesity that really they can't tackle them with diet and exercise. So this was scientists in Baylor College in Texas. And what they did was they looked at mice and they, they had them doing exercise. And then they analyzed all of the different molecules that were produced in their blood. So this is a science called metabolomics, where you just look at all of the outputs of metabolism. And they found a compound going up in concentration in the blood and they didn't know what it was. It was sort of a mysterious new compound. And then they repeated the experiments and they were looking at horses, racehorses, and they found the same compound at an elevated rate when the horses had exercised. Uh, And then they they linked with colleagues who are working in Stanford and the team in Stanford had been looking at humans and they had found this same mystery molecule, but they'd actually characterized it. And and it's called LAC-phi. And it's called LAC because it comes from lactate, which is the lactic acid that builds up in your muscles, that burning sensation when you exercise, combined with phenylalanine, which is a compound of protein. Um, So they brought these two bits of work together and they, they decided, right, this is a really interesting compound. They made it and they fed it to obese mice. And what they found was that once mice had been fed with this over the course of about two weeks, they reduced their food intake by about 50% without any other interventions. Um, It didn't affect their movement or their energy expenditure, but obviously they ate less, which meant they lost weight. They actually developed better glucose tolerance. Uh, and all of like even other markers that are similar to what we see in diabetes improved in these mice. So really exciting. I presume um, there are controls for things like maybe it's just making the mice sick or putting them off their food. They, they, they have an understanding of the mechanism here, right? They do. And actually, really interestingly, they, they broke down it, how this protein is produced inside the body. And, and it's catalyzed by a protein called CNDP2. And CNDP2, I think, is really interesting because it's actually found in immune cells. And I suppose over the last number of decades, you know, this link between our body's metabolism, what we eat, our weight and our immunity you know, scientists are gradually unpicking that picture. Now, when they create a knockout mice that didn't have that CNDP gene, so don't have this pathway to make lac 
they they actually were unable to um, they put on weight um you know under normal circumstances so so right. it actually disrupted their kind of energy balance pathways okay i mean you know it's all very well for people to say exercise but people who are um some people who are excessively um uh, obese uh, would would struggle to to do the sort of exercise that's required and and we know that um reducing calorie intake isn't as easy um as as Previously, uh, maybe uh, maybe it's thought and the experience of desire for food that people who are obese or overweight uh, is sometimes modulated right by hormones and, and other things. It's not as simple as we used to think energy in, energy out. Um, uh, it, it's not the same formula for everyone. Exactly. And even different foods and different people, we know they react differently. Older people, you know, are not necessarily going to be able to exercise as vigorously as they may want to. So while you're not going to get all the benefits of exercise from a pill, I mean, it's great to get outside. It's great to socialize. It's great to build muscle. You're certainly we're we're getting to the bottom of what the molecular basis of exercise and weight loss is, is doing. Shane, our third story uh, can be reduced to fives like fives and tens like tens. Jonathan, that that's a terrible way to describe uh, the reality of this story. <laughs> but you're, you're actually right. So th- this is perhaps one of the most unethical pieces of work I've seen published in a long time. Um, and it was it was done by uh, an anthropologist in the US. And the outcome of the work is that relationships are best between people of similar desirability. Um, yes, shocking. So this this fellow worked with semi-nomadic uh, society in Namibia. and What? Yeah. I uh, did not see that coming yeah, at all. So he, um, all. they interviewed people about the desirability of others in their community. And so they asked everyone, like, what do you make of everyone else? And from that, they estimated a so-called mate value, a metric. And um, this is defined oh as God. how likely people are to want to be in a relationship with someone. But then crucially, what they did was they looked at everyone's relationship status after that. And they found that uh, people with the same mate value were likely to be uh, with one another, but crucially also likely to be successful in their relationship. He didn't define what success meant. <laughs> this, <laughs> but, this, yeah. this is an interesting study from many different angles. Yeah. So what they say is different about this study is that it differs. Normally, studies just ask about desire, as in like, you know, who do you fancy and just leave it at that. But what, what this has done is they've added the, well, what actions have you taken, as in who are you with and how is that going? And so they, they say that like like gets with like um and but, yeah. but like surely how you're getting on with someone completely depends on how they're feeling that morning. Like at 8 a.m., I guarantee you, if you'd ask my wife, how are you getting on? The answer would be not as good as it would have been perhaps at 7 p.m. yesterday evening. So like surely this doesn't really tell us that much at all. But what I'm really interested in is... Um, is it suggesting that in in real life twos and tens don't just don't have a successful relationship what does that mean exactly yeah well that that's what they're suggesting of course everyone listening knows like what does two mean like what does 10 mean like you're the, all tens that's, uh, that's uh, well like is is like is it that there are like um so societal norms around what attractive means um like i i'm sure i that think there are i think i think psychology would say that there are i think people do you know there are some basis bases for general likability but you're right there's absolutely individual 
I would say outliers is probably the wrong thing, but there are individual outliers, but most people would agree this is generally a, an attractive face within our culture. Absolutely. And so what and, and, and why uh, they worked with this community here is it's quite a closed community. Uh, everyone knows one another in this society. I, I figured they they reckoned it was a more controlled environment than just right, letting yeah. loose uh, in, in a more diverse society. Again, I would go back to I, I feel this sort of work is completely unethical. But there you go. Somebody's. I'm su- yeah, I mean, you, you'd imagine you could be able to design the same experiment using computer generated faces. Um and yeah, you, but you, can't, you don't you have get, to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you don't. Have to you be can't with yeah. the person as well. So m- maybe in your dystopian future, we might be dating computers in ten <laughs> years' time. You know, so. <laughs> well, Shane, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know if you heard the episode last uh, week, but I, I, having listened to experts on where we're going, where we are with chatbots, I genuinely, do, I genuinely do feel that we will have friendships with AI in 15 to 20 years. And and I'm not joking. I really do think that will happen. Whether or not we'll start dating them is a different thing. But if you have a friendship, you could theoretically fall in love. I I don't think her is as far-fetched now as it was for me even a few years ago. Uh, Jonathan, Um, finally somebody to go to the pub with you. (laughs) Uh, Ruth, our last story is about robotic fish. I know, and I'm having a bit of deja vu because we were talking about robotic fish a couple of months ago, but that was a fish that was built with human heart cells. This is a fish that's been designed by researchers in Sichuan University in China uh, as, as a, to clean up pollutants in the ocean. So this is a, a tiny little fish. It's about uh, 15 millimetres long, but it's made of a brand new material that they've come up with, uh, which is a, sort of in this field of soft robotics. And obviously soft robots aren't made with things like metal. You know, they're often made with things like silicone or hydrogels but but in this case they were kind of inspired by the ocean and and they they've come up with a new material that's similar to graphene so it's a carbon-based material but they've based it on the structure of nacre and nacre is what we commonly call mother of pearl it's that shiny iridescent substance we see inside mollusks and nacre is amazing scientists have really only uncovered what it is and how it's so strong and resilient over the about the last two years and Nacre is sort of made of building blocks, but they have lots of different sides. They have lots of different faces and there's a cement around them. And and when they're sort of existing, not under pressure, they, they just exist there like a wall of oddly shaped pieces. But when they come under pressure, the cement piece kind of is squeezed out and all the bricks seal together and almost become like a solid. So, so they've yeah. recreated that in a tiny little fish, which is activated by lasers, by light. So when a laser beams on it, it swims around. So uh, what is the usefulness of that, um, Ruth? Well, this material also absorbs microplastics and heavy metals. So in their experimental conditions, as the little fish swims around, microplastics actually attach onto it and it sort of develops a trail of them behind it. And and amazingly, this tiny fish can carry up to five kilograms in weight. Now, I, I'm not sure what happens when it becomes completely encased in, in plastic, you know, how, how long the charge carries. But use the, you can see a little video online where they use it to lift up a five kilogram weight. The, the other thing wow. about this material that's incredible is that it's self-healing. So if it gets torn when it's out in the ocean, it will actually absorb back together again and it can fix itself up to about 85 percent back to the way it was at original kind of when it when it was produced. 
I, I mean, obviously we can't just fire lasers into the seas forever. So the practicality of that, um, also the practicality of unleashing these fish that may also then themselves covered in microplastics be eaten by other fish because they see them moving in the ocean. I mean, I can see some practical problems with that. But, but very briefly, Ruth, what is the p- potential practical application of this technology? There certainly are plenty of issues with it. You're right. But look, the material is an amazing innovation. And I think the idea of using this kind of technology to clean up the ocean uh, certainly has potential. Always the optimist, uh, Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. Thanks very much. Now, when it comes to maintaining that youthful luster, we have, over the years, concocted all manner of things, from cosmetics to dietary plans and exercise regimes to try and get the job done. But unless you've got the actual fountain of youth in your back garden or the holy grail sitting on your mantle, you'll probably be plumb out of luck when it comes to reversing the ageing process completely. That being said, researchers at the University of Rochester have uncovered more evidence that the key to longevity resides instead in a simple enzyme. Vera Gorbonova, professor of biology and medicine and co-director of the Rochester Aging Research Centre at the University of Rochester, joined us now. Uh, Welcome to the programme, Vera. Tell me a little bit about the the research centre. Hello. So the University of Rochester, we have Uh, several professors working on questions related to aging and rejuvenation, uh, also geriatrics. Uh, So it's a pretty comprehensive uh, institute on aging currently. And uh, my role there is mostly studying fundamental research on biology of aging, uh, where we study genes that are important for lifespan. We also study different long-lived animals, uh, to understand the mechanisms that are responsible for their longevity and exceptional health. And then, of course, to try to find ways to implement them, to use them for human patients. Mm. So uh, people might um, be aware that aging on a cellular level often equates to cells starting to break down a little bit and the, the function of those cells failing, the, the inability to repair errors in DNA and so on. Um, can you uh, give us a bit of a snapshot of what that looks like before we talk about C- SIRT6? Yes, so aging is a very complex process. Many things go wrong. And a lot of it has to do with the accumulation of damage that is no longer repaired. Uh, because damage happens all the time, but when we are young, we have systems to repair it successfully and uh, just move on without any long-term effects. Um, but with aging, those repair systems no longer keep up. And that is especially true for DNA. Uh, because our DNA encodes all the information in the cell that's needed for the life of the cell and for the life of the organism. Uh, But mistakes start to accumulate in this DNA, again, because of the damage that is repaired or not repaired correctly. And uh, what's more, the DNA is a very long thread, and it needs to be packaged inside the cell very compactly. And this packaging is important because when you know if things are packaged correctly, it's easy to find the correct gene at correct time. Uh, but over time, it becomes disorganized and rearranged because it's like a drawer uh, with socks. You go in and pull different things out and things really get messy. Hmm. Uh, so this is what happens to our DNA as we age. It becomes messy 
and it's just harder to find things. And this also contributes to dysregulated work of the cell. So um, the DNA molecule in young people is a very tightly wound double helix um, that is, is in, in, in perfect shape. And as we get older, it starts to loosen out a bit uh, as we swap things in and out trying to repair it. It loses that structure and that means that the cell starts to lose its functionality a bit. Yes, you're absolutely right. This is what happens because in DNA we have regions that need to be tightly bound. We do not want them to be active, uh, but they loosen up. Uh, Then there are other regions that we want to be active and instead they become more tangled. Um, So overall, the proteins that the cell produced are now not very specific. And uh, that's why the function of entire tissue that consists now of many cells, each cell is doing something different because of this disorganization. So overall, the tissue doesn't function as good anymore. And we need some systems to put it back together. So does the the ability of our cells to repair have a a correlation with longevity or um, our age? Oh, yes, yes. So that's been a subject of research of my group for many years. Uh, And we showed that both is true. So as we get older, our ability to repair um, declines. Uh, But also if we compare different uh, organisms uh, that have different maximum lifespans, for example, if you compare mouse uh, to a human to a naked mole rat, uh, there will be very strong correlation between uh, the maximum lifespan and how well they are able to repair DNA. So if you plan to live for a long time, you have to have a good repair system. Yeah. What causes the the, the breaking down of this DNA exactly? What, what causes the strands to break apart? Uh, well, so there are many reasons. Uh, some are external, like radiation, UV light. Uh, but there are also internal processes because DNA is a very active molecule. It needs to be replicated every time the cell divides. It also needs to be transcribe to make RNA and protein. And for that, again, enzymes have to come in, open up certain regions of the DNA, uh, and then close them back. Uh, So there there is always this activity going on around the DNA, and these activities can get, you know, conflicting. For example, you may have a cell replicating, but it's also transcribing at the same time. So that may actually cause a break because two different crews all of a sudden meet on the same stretch of the road. Hmm. Uh, so this happens a lot because it's a very, it's a very busy place. Is it also true that, um, that oxygen damages DNA, much like oxygen damages metal and, and causes it to rust? Yes, oxygen can oxidize DNA, uh, and that happens quite frequently because uh, we are using oxygen for our energy, so the reaction in the mitochondria of the cell that involve oxygen, and sometimes free radicals escape again because not nothing is perfect in a biological system, so there is some leakage uh, of free oxygen radicals, and if they encounter DNA, they will cause damage there as well. So talk to me about this enzyme, SIRT6, and why it is called the longevity gene. 
Yeah, so it's a very interesting enzyme. We stumbled upon it uh, now more than 10 years ago uh, because we were interested in DNA repair and uh, we tested uh, multiple enzymes. If they we give cells extra dose of these enzymes, will they be able to improve repair? And most of them don't because it's a very complex system to repair DNA. You just give increase one component, it doesn't mean everything will work better. It may actually get worse. Uh, but sirtuin-6 was one enzyme that we were giving an extra dose of it and the DNA repair was improving. So that was quite remarkable. Uh, but what was known from other people's investigation is that if you mutate this protein completely in a mouse, uh, these mice start to be very short-lived and they show a lot of genomic instability and premature aging. Wow. Also, if, if you express an extra dose of CERT6 in a mouse, the mouse lives longer. So that's what really made it a longevity gene. Uh, and we analyzed the role of CERT6 across multiple species of animals because, as I told you, we discovered that uh, longer-lived species repair DNA better, and we wanted to understand why. Uh, and when we looked at CERT6, its activity correlated perfectly with the lifespan and uh, with DNA repair. And we could even swap CERT6 between a mouse that is very short-lived and the beaver that is a long-lived rodent uh, and improve DNA repair in the mouse. Wait, wait a second. So, that, so, so you're saying that this CERT6 pro, um, enzyme is different in different animals. It's a different version of it. And you can swap it out from one animal to a next <clears throat> to improve cell repair and therefore make a mouse with a beaver version of this enzyme live longer well we don't know this experiment is ongoing because it takes time but we have such a mouse and we know that they repair dna better Uh, but we don't know yet how much longer they will live they seem to be doing fine so far wow Uh, but but that's our expectation (coughs) that they will live longer because we know that if we give even extra dose of the mouse cell six which is fairly weak enzyme Uh, they already live longer by about 15 to 20%. So we hope that with beaver cert 6, they will live even longer than that. What about bats? Bats are famous outliers when it comes to longevity, some living up to 30 or 40 years, despite the fact that most animals their size live nowhere near that. Have you looked at the enzymes in those animals? Uh, Well, bats are really exceptional, and uh, we started working on bats about three years ago. Uh, We have a wonderful collaboration with Emma Teeling, who is at the University of Dublin. Yes. Uh, And uh, yes, so together we'll be looking at DNA repair in bats. And for that study that I mentioned where we saw this perfect correlation, bats were not included in that study, but right now, uh, we are measuring DNA repair in bats, and just some unpublished data, what we see is that they actually have very accurate DNA repair. But uh, this needs to be confirmed by more experiments. So over the last number of years, we've heard a number of different things that seem to improve aging, one of which is, is swapping out the, the blood of a young person for an old person, um, or, or in, in the case uh, of the experiment, a young mouse and an old mouse. I'm wondering, in that instance, 
it's 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 probably very impractical to use as a as a human to human experiment. But if we identify an enzyme that really helps DNA repair, how medically or clinically useful is something like that? Uh, well, yes, of course, we are thinking about ways how to make it clinically useful. And uh, there are different approaches to that. Maybe we don't even have to swap blood. <laughs> um, so one approach would be to activate CERT6 using small molecules uh, because it's an enzyme uh, and uh, we can find chemical activators to it. And people were already looking for such activators for sirtuin 6 because it seems to be such an attractive target uh, to improve human health. Uh, there were several molecules published, but most of them, they came from chemical screens and we don't know how safe they are. Uh, but there are also molecules that come from nutrients, so something that people actually take on a daily basis. Uh, one of them is a molecule called fucoidin, uh, that is found in some species of brown seaweed. And we tested this molecule, and it is a very strong activator of sirtuin 6 And right now we have a cohort of old mice uh, that were feeding seaweed, <laughs> and we are following the aging pattern, and we see uh, that they are less frail uh, than the control mice. Uh, we don't know if they will live significantly longer, but that's something we will find out in the next few months. Wow, that, that could be very interesting indeed. But you talked about um, cell aging and disrepair over a lifetime. Does the enzyme itself get worse at its job? Or if we have this enzyme at youth, why does it not continue to protect against aging uh, as we get older? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, so somehow sirtuin 6 becomes limiting. And um, our hypothesis, uh, we have to talk a little bit to understand, we talk a little bit about the different functions of CERT6, uh, because it has a role at uh, maintaining DNA packaging, uh, but it also has a role at repairing DNA. And as we get older, there is more to repair because there is more damage. Uh, it also attends to telomeres because telomeres get short and they start to look more like damaged DNA. So some cert 6 goes and binds there. So overall, there is just less cert 6 available to do all of its jobs. Right. Telomeres being the ends uh, or ends of the strands of DNA that need to be long and as they shorten um, the, 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 the sort of laces get frayed a little bit uh, over time and, and that uh, leads to, to, to problems. What if we find in, in the animal kingdom CERT6 that outperforms all other animals, including humans, uh, and we, we find that we can find a way to get it in, into the human body? What do you think the potential of that might be? Well, yeah, that, that would be very, very promising. So uh, this, this is sort of another strategy. So we talked about molecules. Uh, but yeah, it may be possible to deliver the gene directly. And now there are strategies using nanoparticles to do that. Uh, so I'm part of um, uh, one biotech startup company who proposes to do the gene therapy with CERT6. Uh, of course, the initial goal is to target different diseases uh, because there are diseases that are caused by 
cells being aged, like fibrosis type diseases. And here, yeah. six may help as an indication. But ultimately, we would like to, of course, also target aging itself. Uh, but for this, it needs to be very safe. Uh, so there is uh, some road ahead to because for any gene therapy we have to be very serious about safety. Uh, but it is possible. So now the question: which cert six to deliver? So we have some cert sixes that are better than human. For example, we study cert six from the bowhead whale, uh, that is the longest lived mammal on Earth. They live more than two hundred years, and they have very strong cert six. It may be possible to use that. Uh, although one concern is that if we introduce a protein that is different enough from a human protein, it may cause allergic reaction. Mm. So we have to ensure that this doesn't happen. Uh, another possibility is that we discovered uh, variants of cell 6 within human population. Uh, so there is a variant that is enriched in people that live more than 100 years. We call the centenarian variant of cell 6 and it has a stronger activity than a wild type human cert 6 So we could also try delivering that version of cert 6 Wow. It sounds like there is so much potential here to, to turn back the tide of disease and, and ultimately uh, aging too. Really exciting area of research. Vera Gorbanova is Professor of Biology and Medicine and co-director of the Rochester Aging Research Centre. Vera, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. I wonder if you took all of the efforts to stop or delay aging and put them in one person. Like we got a volunteer and said, you, from age zero, we are going to give you everything we know from human knowledge to see how long you can live if we give you all of the interventions throughout your entire life, like, you know, making sure you eat properly and sleep properly and exercise correctly and do Sudoku when you get older and um, have a good social life and go for long walks and um, play music and take all the stem cell therapies that we have available right now and swap out your blood with young people and just basically everything that we know, all of the science that we know has a small effect on a long, long life. And we just put them into one person, like, just see how far that person goes. Isn't that, wouldn't that be an amazing story? And an amazing, like, it would make a great running TV series as well. My idea, I claim that idea, in case anybody wants to run with it. Um, I wonder how, they, how old they go. Would they go to 130? Would they make 150? Uh, Aubrey de Bray, his, um, he was a kind of a, he's a, a thinker and a scientist who put up a Methuselah Prize, he called it, uh, for anyone who, you know, cracked a really significant um, leap in our ability to stave off old age and death. And uh, he was saying, look, we've been adding a year on every 10 years. So even the people who are alive now, um, for every 10 years, they'll get an extra year due to new diets or, you know, better quality medicines or new technologies. And so we're already, you know, we're already going to get an extra 10 years based on current science. And science is only accelerating. So his, his thoughts were the, the person who's going to live to 150 has already been born. But right now the record is 122 days. French woman smoked all of her life pretty much. <laughs> Go figure. Right. On to more pressing matters. And it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week. And we were talking about Lambda 
And um, I'm not sure if you heard the episode. We were coming off the back. One of the vagaries of um, doing Future Proof is that sometimes you get caught with a big story breaking on like a Sunday or a Monday. And that means you've got to wait a week while the entire news cycle runs through the story. And by the time you, you've got it, it's sort of mulch. And uh, and that was the case with the Lambda story from last week, where um, by the time we got into it, every major news outlet had told the story of the Google AI chatbot Lambda um, and uh, one of the engineers working at Google who had been having inverted commas conversations with the chatbot and deemed that it may be sentient and having um, made his conversations with the chatbot public and also claiming that they are uh, the chatbot could be sentient was then um, put on administrative leave uh, from Google, aka fired. Um, and so the conversations were all about whether or not the chatbot was sentient. But for me, what was really interesting was who cares whether it's sentient or not, what your definition of that is. As soon as we start treating robots like they're sentient, as soon as we start doing that, then we're into a whole weird-ass world. And I, I, I really do think, we're, we're having had that conversation, I don't know about your thoughts, I really feel like we are really close, by the sounds of it, to having AI companions that we could have the crack with. Have you seen The Hard Way? It's a film with um, Michael J. Fox and James Woods, um, in which Michael J. Fox is a, an actor um, playing... Um, uh, a cop in a movie and he spends some time with a real life cop uh, who is being punished uh, to sh- uh, and as punishment is has to chaperone Michael J. Fox and it's a it's a buddy movie it's it's a fantastic um, comedy that's often overlooked um, the two characters play really well and one of the things about AI is that you could um, you could program an AI to have the personality of James Woods in this movie, which is super dry, super sarcastic and very funny. And then you could hang around with that AI all the time and be Michael J. Fox, who I completely identify with in that film because it's very much like my personality. I'm the goofy idiot. Um, and, I, 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 you know, you need a counterfoil for that. Like, uh, uh, you know, when you think about the chatbot, the sort of conversations go way beyond what's in the film, of course. I think that's really cool. Someone says, I suppose if I slammed that lambda very hard with a hammer, it would be the equivalent of a dead parrot. Um, is that a Monty Python reference? It's bleeding the boys. It's pushing up the daisies. Um, does lambda have a sense of humor, says someone else. I've been, I actually was Googling during the week, efforts to make AI tell funny jokes. We're nowhere near there yet. That's, that's very difficult. Um, but... I think it will come. I think um, it will come. Like when you think about comedy, it's actually pretty formulaic, right? You've got um, setup, confirmation, subversion, right? You've got your setup and then you you keep on going. You, you confer- confirm, so you basically you're setting up a scenario, then you lead the audience to think you're going somewhere and then you switch out, um, which is, you know, your standard st- stand-up line. And then the other type of, of humor that's often used a lot is, you know, sort of dual meaning of words. Like this... It's, that doesn't seem like it's going to be that hard to make, come up with comedy for AI, but then they haven't done it yet. Um, Damien O'Quinn says, it shouldn't surprise us if the first sentient AI springs from a language generator. Language is how we understand and prove our own sentience, and a lot of the requirements for natural language mimic our own thought processes. Um, look, 
it sounds pretty sentient to me and, and they are getting there um, even though they aren't by definition they seem like they're getting there Harry Palmer says ask if this chatbot would like some ice cream let's be honest it's not the words that unsettle it's the voice keep robots sounding like robots please I, I think the point is you know as, as soon as you ask the chatbot if it likes ice cream then uh, you realise that it's not sentient but I'm sure that chatbot is smart enough to say I don't eat ice cream Right, that's not a hard thing for for like the super super advanced Google AI to figure out. Um, Gaz the Bat says, as usual, an excellent episode of News Talk Science. For what it's worth, I do believe we are simple text parsing machines ourselves. I wonder how long Lambda had been switched on. Can you just switch it on, or was it running for months? I think that it was fed input for a long time. I think it's a it has been running and accumulating knowledge for quite some time. Um, another says hello long time listener first time email I really enjoyed the Lambda episode it reminded me of the great show Humans which I just finished watching on Netflix oh you know when I started watching that I never saw the end I must go back to it uh, similar topics raised absolutely yeah it's a really good one actually and um, it's in, in which um, robots who are just serving humans as sort of like essentially robot servants suddenly um, have their sentience turned on and then it's like it's a it's it's about race it's, the subtext is about race as well i mean it's very interesting but um it, I, I thought it was well well acted and a good good sci-fi um on an unrelated topic they say what time is it in space for example on the iss on the moon on mars etc and as we go further out what is our reference point keep up the good work thanks connor so I, I, I'm not good with time. I have no idea. And I, even though we had a fantastic episode um, not so long ago with Carlo Ravelli, in which he blew my mind with the, um, with the weirdness of time, something you will hear in the next podcast in the feed, in the podcast Future Proof Gold. Um, I still don't know what time it is in the North Pole and the South Pole. Is it all times? I, I suppose, I suppose on, on the North Pole, it is the time in the North Pole. It's not all, all the other times. It's the time in the North Pole, which is also one o'clock somewhere or five o'clock somewhere else. Um, so it's, it's, it's not all times. It's whatever time it is there. <laughs> I haven't helped at all with this. Time and electricity. We, did the, we will make a list. These are the things that confuse me. Um, uh, well, Connor, uh, do check out that episode because uh, uh, it is very good and will blow your mind um, with some of the concepts. And one of them is that time essentially is nothing more than heat transfer. That was my takeaway from that episode. It was just, what? Um, right, this has been way too long, but I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, accompanying me along the way was our brilliant producer, Aidan McKelvey, um, working on the show this week, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Jojo Cardozo was on sound. Thank you for listening. We will see you very shortly in the Future Proof Podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, look after yourself. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.